This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reform Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reform views based on the Word of God and the Reform Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. We read this morning from the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53. The familiar passage in Isaiah, which prophesies of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Isaiah chapter 53, hear the word of God. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he hath done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. You shall see his seed, you shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Read that far in God's holy and inspired word. We now turn to the Heidelberg Catechism and Lord's Day 16. Lord's Day 16 is the Heidelberg Catechism's explanation of the content of our faith, what or whom we believe. The Catechism in explaining who we believe explains the Apostles' Creed and the section this morning in particular of His death dead, buried, 
and descended into hell. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble Himself even unto death? Because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. Why was He also buried? Thereby to prove that He was really dead. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? That by virtue thereof, our old man is crucified, dead and buried with him. That so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why is there added, he descended into hell? that in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by His inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies in which He was plunged during all His sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior leads us with the catechism and with His Word to ponder a difficult topic this morning, and that is the topic of death. And although death itself is not a pleasant thought, we face death this morning and understand what it is. Death is separation. Death is separation in three senses. First, death is the separation, the tearing apart of soul and body. So that when someone you love dies, or when one day you die, death is such a separating power that it will divide your soul from your body. Body and soul which belong together, that which we had together immediately at conception, that which is difficult even to imagine how they could be apart. Death unnaturally separates soul and body. Second, death separates the person from his earthly ties. That is the pain which we feel on this earth when a loved one dies. There is a departure, we say. There is the breaking of a bond of an earthly relationship. Even that relationship of husband and wife is broken, till death, we say, do us part. The person once in a close, even a very close relationship to another, to other members of the church, at death becomes a memory. There is hope, of course, for the child of God. There is, we talk about that today, but the reality of death is that it is an enemy which separates a person, the soul from us and the body from us as that body descends into the grave. And third, about the separating power of death is the worse of death. Death is not only a separation of soul and body. Death is not only a separation of a person from earthly ties. But death in its full reality 
is separation from God. As we sang in Psalter number 203, based on Psalm 73, to live apart from God is death. Death is an enemy. It is not a passive enemy. But death is an attacking enemy. And in its full reality, death continues to attack everlastingly. And because of sin and for sin, death ought to come like a strong and cruel soldier to attack and not stop attacking, to cut and not stop cutting, to divide and not stop dividing God from man and man from God. And thus hell, you see, is an eternal or everlasting death, separation, rejection, forsakenness of God. The Son of God died. That's what we ponder this morning. The Son of God died and suffered the full reality of this death for us, for His elect people, in order to bring, as one Puritan put it, death to death. To bring the death of death for us, His people. No, He doesn't rid us of every aspect of death here on this earth as the catechism makes us face plainly in question and answer 42. Why must we also die, it asks. And we must answer that question. There are aspects of a certain kind of death that we must still face. Temporary aspects. But He, the Son of God who has died, delivers us from the worst of death. And He, the Son of God who has died, has so conquered death that even the very aspects, temporary aspects of death which we must face in this life, He makes our servant. Consider with me the death of the Son of God. First of all, the meaning. Second, the benefits. And then finally, the glory. The meaning of His death, the benefits of His death, and then finally, the glory. Beloved, the truth that the Son of God died is a familiar truth, but it's a truth that is not to be mentioned briefly, to be reviewed quickly, and then to put aside. But the truth of the Son of God is that which we are to ponder with awe, and we are to meditate on throughout our lives. It is a deep mystery, and in this mystery is all the power and benefit that we need for eternal life. The Son of God really died. He suffered death in all of its horror. Immortality took on mortality so that He might die. The living God who had eternal life in Himself took on death. That's astounding. He suffered death. And he suffered death, beloved, not only at that moment when he took his last breath. When we think of death sometimes, we sometimes limit death too narrowly to the moment when the heart stops beating and there is no more breathing. And while it is proper to speak of someone facing death at that moment, there is a process to death. That's what we speak of when we speak of someone dying. There is a process to death. And in Isaiah 53, verse 12, 
we find an important expression which points us to this idea of death as a process, as a descending downward to that last point. Isaiah 53 verse 12 has this expression of Jesus Christ describing Him. He hath poured out His soul unto death. Think about that activity of pouring. Jesus was pouring out His soul unto death. That's what He came to do. And we can say even immediately, at the moment of His conception in the virgin's womb, He was already there beginning to pour out His soul unto death. For when the immortal, think about it, the second person of the Trinity, took on mortality, took on our human soul and human body in its weakened form, He immediately began to descend toward that last moment of death. Or as the baptism form puts it, remember, in that prayer, this life which is nothing but a continual death. And then especially at the end of his life, we saw last week as he was sweating the great drops of sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was pouring out his soul unto death. Part of that suffering of death was the whips that he allowed to lacerate, to separate, remember, to separate his back, to divide skin tissue, to separate muscles even, probably down to the bone. He was suffering death as, as the crown of thorns pierced his skull. He was suffering death as the spikes were nailed into His hands and His feet to the cross. He was pouring out His soul unto death as He endured the suffocating experience. His body being dragged down by gravity and His exhausted frame struggling to take each breath. He poured out His soul even unto death, especially on the cross. His death was that separation of soul from body. It was also a separation from earthly relationships. Isaiah 53 verse 8 says, He was cut off out of the land of the living. There on the cross, He was suspended between heaven and earth as a symbol of rejection of both heaven and earth. His disciples had already forsaken Him. One had denied Him, another had betrayed Him. The people that once followed Him had cried, Crucify Him, His blood be upon us. The world was forsaking Him. He was already facing that separation of relationships from those on this earth. And then at His death, He was cut off from those earthly ties. But remember, death in its full reality, death at its worst, is not only the separation of soul and body, it's not only the cutting of earthly ties, but it's separation from God. And so, beloved, the Son of God, when He was on that cross, did not let His soul separate from His body and did not let there be a cutting off of earthly ties until He suffered in all of its fullness the worst part of death. And that is what we are confessing when we say He descended into hell. That is the worst of death. That is the fullness of death. That separation of God. Hell. The Catechism describes that phrase descended into hell this way. 
that my Lord Jesus, by His inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies, in which He was plunged during all all of His sufferings, but especially on the cross. On the cross. To live apart from God is death. You don't know what that is if you are a child of God. Not in this fullness. The Son of God endured this mysterious, awful, inexpressible anguish. The infinite wrath of God coming upon Him to reject Him, to forsake Him. That's death. That's death. So much so that he cried that cry, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Greater than any other part or aspect of death was this death. Children, when, when, when did he suffer this? hellish death, this forsakenness of God, not after He took His last breath, but while He was dying, especially during those three hours of darkness on the cross. The Roman Catholics are the ones that believe that after He took His last breath, and the soul and body were separated, then he went to the depths of hell. That's Roman Catholic theology, and it's nowhere in Scripture. The proper explanation of that phrase, he descended into hell, is that it is an explanation of his death. It is a description of the suffering of his death in all of its fullness. Be mindful of that when you confess that in the Apostles' Creed. He died, we say, was buried, he descended into hell, not as a chronological thing that happened after his death and burial, but as a summary and an explanation of the fullness of his suffering of that hellish death. Marvel at that love. Voluntarily, This Son of God, driven by love for His Father and love for you, His elect, by name, He took on this death. About His life and His death, Jesus said in John 10.18, No man taketh it from Me, but I lay it down of Myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. The Son of God with one single word could have destroyed all those puny human beings who with wicked hands tried to kill Him. The Son of God could have proven Himself the Son of God by coming down from off the cross as they tempted Him and mocked Him to do. But He did not. He did not. He willed not to. He voluntarily endured the fullness of death unto the end out of love. For his people. He was not forced against his will by God the Father. But he said, Thy will be done. And descended into hell. Notice we confess not that he was cast into the hell, as we would say about all who do not repent and believe. But he descended. He took it. Our hell. And then hear him as he, having finished suffering those hellish agonies of separation and rejection of God, having done that, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit and gave up the ghost. Again, 
to show us that death could not take him, but he voluntarily took that death, that separation of soul and body, that cutting off from earthly ties. He loved John 13, and having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Now focus, beloved, on the fact that the very Son of God died. Question and answer 40 says, Satisfaction for our sins could be made no other wise than by the death of, of, of whom? The catechism doesn't use the word Jesus or Christ, though the catechism could have, and it would have been right, correct, but as a striking way to put it, the death of the Son of God. The Son of God died. Don't minimize that. Don't, don't merely say His human nature died. That is true. But the Son of God, that person, died. And again, there's mystery here. But the explanation is that His person suffered death. It wasn't just His human nature. And, and I ask you, who is His person? Who is Christ's person? He is the second person of the Trinity. He's the second person of the Trinity, remember? Who joined Himself inseparably to the human body and soul, the human nature. This person who is the one who is the subject of all actions that He did, this person of the Son of God came down. This person of the Son of God suffered death in all of its horror. So that when we say that soul and body were, were separated at death, soul went up to heaven, and body separated went to the grave. We said before, remember, that that Separation did not cause a separation of the person. The second person joined to the human nature. So that even in that separated condition, God the Son was still joined to the body and soul. The human nature of Jesus. That person suffered the separation of death. It endured. He endured it. That person was cut off from the land of the living. He enjoyed the bonds to the people below. And then a death was cut off from the land of the living. And that person somehow of the Son of God sustained The wrath, the hell, Martin Luther put it. God forsaken by God. He really died. The Catechism explains that the burial proves that he really went all the way to the end and gave up the ghost. Why was he buried? The catechism asks, thereby to prove that he was really dead. Now, of course, there are many other proofs or evidences joined to this proof of burial. Catechism is not isolating burial is the only proof of his death. You remember, and joined to that burial is that the enemies of Jesus Christ made sure of his death. The enemies of Jesus Christ, remember, were the Jewish leaders and Pontius Pilate. They knew, they remember, they, they discussed, remember, that Jesus had predicted He would die and then rise again. And they were going to prevent that. They didn't believe He could rise from the dead. They, they thought that 
the disciples or someone was going to come and steal his body and claim his resurrection. That's why Pilate, remember, posted guards by the tomb so that no one could claim that. But in addition to doing that, Pilate also made sure that he was dead. Mark 15, you can look that up later, shows Pilate sending his centurion and soldiers to confirm that he was dead. And to come back to Pilate and assure Pilate that he was truly dead. Exactly. Because he didn't believe in the resurrection. And didn't want a fainted man or one who was enduring a coma to then recover and claim resurrection. They made sure of it. They went to the bodies hanging on the cross. They made sure, as soldiers were able to make sure. They broke the legs of the two others, and they were so sure that Jesus in the middle was dead, that they saw no reason to break His legs, but pierced His side. The disciples were sure of it. They were in a gloom. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who took Jesus' body off the cross, cross, would not have wrapped it up and would not have laid it in that tomb, except they knew He was, as the Son of God, really dead. The Son of God endured the death we deserve in all of its fullness. And the death of the Son of God is so great a death that it is the basis for all the gracious benefits bestowed unto us. The canons had two Articles 3 and 4 speak of the death of the Son of God as of being as being of infinite value, of infinite value. In the canons there in head two, articles three and four, is explaining the truth of limited atonement, as we call it, a, a beautiful doctrine, limited atonement. That Christ when he died, did not die for every single person in the whole world, but he died for his elect people only, whom God had chosen unconditionally from eternity. Limited in that sense. But there were Arminians, remonstrants, who were pointing at that word limited to claim that the Reformed held to an atonement which was somehow deficient or of less value than the remonstrant or Arminian form of atonement, which they claimed covered everyone's sins. And so the canons in Articles 3 and 4 of Head 2 emphasizes that though the atonement and the death of Christ was limited in that it was only for the elect people, It was of infinite value. Not deficient in any sense. Effectual, actually, to accomplish salvation against the Arminian view that the atonement and the death of Christ didn't actually accomplish salvation, but depended on man to accomplish it for themselves. Of infinite value so that the death of the Son of God could have, if He had wanted it to, cover or sufficiently cover the sins of everyone if He had wanted it to. But He did not. Only for His people, you see. And now positively, of infinite value because the benefits, the benefits of the death of the Son of God is so great and so many that you and I should be overwhelmed by them. We can't have enough explanation of all the benefits. There are so many. The Catechism points to four. First, the first benefit which the Catechism points out of Christ's death is that God's justice is fully satisfied for all of His elect. 
Or negatively put, His elect, you and I, have absolutely nothing to do or to suffer to satisfy God's justice. Because the Son of God has fully satisfied it. Question answer 40 speaks of this with respect to the justice and truth of God. Satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. If the Son of God had not died and suffered death in all of its entirety, all of its fullness and horror, then, the Catechism is saying, then the justice of God would not have been satisfied. Then, then there would still be something left for us to do, something to suffer, something to pay in order to satisfy God's justice. If, when put it more emphatically, if Jesus had lived the perfect life of obedience to all of God's commandments, if He had suffered all His life long, if He had been hung on the cross, and had not suffered death, then God's justice still would not have been satisfied, and you and I still have more to suffer and to do. But the point is, He did. He did die. The Word of God says so in truth. Burial proves that He died. God's Word everywhere, Isaiah 53, prophesies and shows us He did die to satisfy God's justice completely. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That He died to satisfy God's justice completely. And God says about His finished work, I am satisfied, abundantly satisfied with the perfect work of My Son. It is enough. Then stop trying to do something or think you have to suffer something yet to satisfy God's justice. You see, beloved, I warn you of that because it's our sinful nature to think that there is yet more to suffer. That's why we, in suffering, began to think that God's against us. Don't you know? That when we suffer death to our loved one, when we suffer cancer, when we suffer singlehood, when we suffer anxiety, when we suffer Parkinson's, when we suffer old age, when we suffer anything in this life, when our minds begin to, begin to think, God's against me. He's bringing justice upon me. That's our minds forgetting. He died to fully satisfy for all my sins. This is not satisfaction. This is not God's punishment against me. Especially, beloved, when you have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and your spouse, your wife, your husband has to face death and you must face that difficult separation. Remember, He died fully satisfied. Death itself cannot come. But the satisfaction of God's justice, He is not against you even in death. There is peace between you and the just God. But then this too. There's nothing to suffer to satisfy God's justice. But there's also nothing you must do to satisfy God's justice. I've noticed that many of you are perfectionists, like myself, by nature. You take on a lot. You work hard. Your goal in life is to perform well, to perform very well in school, on the playing field, in church, on the job. You like that perfect score. All A's. The approval of men. 
And all that is not wrong of itself. And I am so thankful, beloved. I'm so thankful for hard-working, diligent people of God who labor and thanks for their salvation. But as you do so, I warn you of the tendency, the natural tendency of your human heart and my human heart, that as I perform, as I perform and as you perform, as you work hard because you want your dad's approval, children, you want your mom's approval, you want the approval of your peers, and you want the approval of those who might judge you, very easily, very easily we begin to perform to gain the approval of God and imagine that somehow we must do something to satisfy Him. And on this Sabbath day I call you then, therefore, you must hear it again, rest. Rest. You have His approval. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has fully satisfied already your God, your judge. And the knowledge of that and rest in that does not result in a lazy person as some of you might fear. It doesn't. But in the one who believes resting and this satisfaction of Jesus Christ. This is the benefit. There's such peace. There's such joy. There's such thanksgiving in this finished work of Jesus Christ that you will live your life. The call to live your life in thanks. The anxiety that you feel, the despair that you're not good enough melts away. It's done. I can rest in Jesus and press onward in the race set before me. No performance, no suffering is necessary to satisfy the God already satisfied. That's the first benefit of the death of Christ. Second, the Catechism points us to how the death of Christ has transformed your death and my death as a servant, to be a servant for good. That's question and answer 42. Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. Oh, what comfort. So much comfort just from those words. Go back to these words again and again. You have to whenever you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The Son of God has so defeated death, beloved, that He actually governs death. The smaller aspects of death that we still have to face, He governs them for our blessing. Death is like a dog on a leash. Restrained by Christ's hand and in His hand, so under His power that death cannot take you. Death cannot take me. Beloved, listen. Death cannot take us. We are immortal. That's what Jesus meant when He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in Me shall never die. Listen to what that means. Just as death could not take the Son of God when He was hanging on the cross. Just as death and life was so in His power that He had to give up His life and lay it down, so also now your death is in His power. You cannot die, not even physically, until the Son of God who has death on His leash brings death as a servant for you. You had evidence of that recently. A little boy thrown from a car into a ditch after a crash with a car landing on top of him. He cannot die except it be God's will. Death is so in his leash. And then according to His time. 
See how this removes the fear of death. According to the Son of God in His time and His exact manner, not too soon, not too late, not too much pain, He lets death visit. But He's there with death. He's there. Carefully to divide soul and body. Yes, to cut the earthly ties temporarily for a little while. But to bring us to Him for absence from the body is to be present with the Lord. And to be present with the Lord is to be without any sin. An abolishing of sin, as the Catechism says. Death has made His servant as a passageway unto life eternal. Third, Death to the old man. What further benefit? Question answer 43. Besides that God's justice is fully satisfied and that death is Christ's servant for my blessing. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? The death of the old man. That's, what, that's how that's summed up. That's how the answer is summed up. Understand this rightly. Death to the old man, not only when I get to heaven. The catechism has already talked about the abolishing of sin. The removal totally of the old man when I get to heaven. But now, in this question and answer, death to the old man, also now while I live on this earth. That's the benefit of Christ's death. That by virtue thereof, our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with Him. And then an explanation of that, so... The corrupt inclination of the, of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto Him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Hear this. The death of the Son of God is so great that He brings death to your old man. He does. For each one of His elect people whom He regenerates, he does. His death has earned it fully, but more, the catechism is explaining. As soon, as soon as our crucified and risen Savior joins us by the bond of faith to Himself, There's death to the old man. Comparable to the death of Christ. Children, let's make that concrete. The moment you were conceived in your mother's womb, you had an old man in your soul. The moment you were conceived, each one of us was conceived in our, in our mother's womb. There was an old man and only the old man. Only the old man who was ruling your heart on the throne, as we say. You could only sin. But at some point after your conception, the Son of God who died for you came with His Holy Spirit. And He not only kicked off that old man from the throne of your heart, but He pounded in the head of that old man. He crushed the head of that old man like the crushing of the head of a serpent. He hanged that old man on the cross. And yes, that old man is still kicking with his crushed head. And he's vicious in his death throes. But this is what we mean in Reformed language when we say in principle. He is in principle dead. He's as good as dead. And though he gets the better of us in life too often, the profit or benefit of the death of Jesus Christ is this. 
he does not reign because the death blow has been brought against him. And instead of that old man reigning, the new man reigns. And by that new man I can and I do repent of my sin and you do as well. And you believe and you live a life of godliness as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. If you deny this, this is how serious it is. If you deny this and you live your life impenitently as though the old man is still reigning, then you are denying the greatness of the death of Christ, which is so great that the Word of God says He brings death to the old man. Finally, the benefit we receive is assurance. Assurance in times of doubt and temptation. Answer 44 in describing dissension into hell that in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this that my Lord Jesus Christ had delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. Beloved, while it is true, emphatically so, that the old man with his head has been crushed. There are still great temptations. There are greater temptations. And there are the greatest of temptations. The great temptations you know are the ones that Satan constantly brings upon you and you feel him bring it upon you. Your besetting sins, which are steps, step by step, unto great falls. The greater temptations are the ones that after you fall into sin, whether it be that smaller besetting sin or gross outward sin, the greater temptation is don't repent. Be stubborn, deflect, blame, ignore, excuse. It's too shameful, too humiliating. Protect yourself, defend yourself. That's the greater temptation unto impenitence. And the greatest is often when we refuse to repent. And sometimes also, even after repenting, an awful darkness of our sinful natures overwhelms us and we feel too sinful to be saved. And the temptation and the tempter comes. They're going to hell. And so I call you, beloved, in those greatest of temptations to remember this benefit. It's a benefit in the lowest of lows, beloved. It's a benefit that you don't, you don't have to turn to your works. Yes, your works confirm that you have faith. I'm not denying that. In your greatest temptations, I call you. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ alone. Turn to His death. Turn to His hellish agonies. And stay there. Stay there. Keep your eyes there. Dwell there. Rest there. Tell Satan, get thee behind me. This is my greatest of benefit. In your greatest of temptations, He descended into hell for me. And the assurance that you have will grow. It will increase as you wait upon Him who took your hell for you. That is the benefit that you need and that you have from this crucified Son of God.
four benefits which the catechism has pointed us to are only four. There, there are many more. But all the benefits of salvation flowing as a fountain from the cross, from the death of Christ unto us, are not only benefits which thrill us, and comfort us, they are. But they're meant for the glory of Jesus Christ. Come, let us bow down. Let us kneel before our Maker. Let us kneel before the Son of God who died for us. Why do you bring glory to yourself? Why do you bring glory to man? What else is there to glory in? Is there any event, any other win to glory in? Paul says, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world, everything in the world is crucified to me. And I unto the world stand in awe of the glory of His justice. Yes, it took the Son of God, fully God, fully man, perfectly righteous, to suffer all of the hellish agonies through his life and descend all the way unto death. What justice that he took for me. And what love that he humbled himself, stooped so low, voluntarily, to endure death in all and the fullness of its horror for you. For me, who still would dare sin against Him. What love, what mercy to deliver us not only from the depths of hell, but into the heights of heaven. To make death a passageway. To make us soul and body so belong to Him. That the temporary effects of a physical death are just that, temporary. And soon and very soon, our living Lord will bring us home. Oh, what glory! What glory! The many gracious benefits bestowed on us Show us that glory. Make your life now a living sacrifice of thanks unto this Lord of glory. That's not just your obligation. That's not just your calling. It is. But beloved, don't you see that's part of the benefit of the death of Christ. Think about it. Even as you sit here and the Lord is working in your heart and He's stirring in you a joy and a glorifying of the Son of God who died for me. That worship that is coming forth from your heart today is is the benefit of His death for you. And there's joy in that because the glory of Jesus Christ is inextricably linked in the, to your joy. And as you glorify Him on this Sabbath day, as you go forth and seek to glorify Him in all that you do and say, that is a joyful blessing flowing from Christ. And one day, we will say with all of His people, as part of the glory of Christ, inextricably linked to our joy, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing now and forever. Amen and amen. Let's pray.
Glory be unto Thee, O God, and to the Son of God who died. What justice, what truth, what love, what mercy. Forbid it, Lord, that we glory in anything save the cross of Jesus Christ. Work in us sorrow when we do. Sorrow for the greatness of sin and awe of the Son of God who would so love us. He would die. He would face death in its fullness. To have such a victory over it that it is now our servant to bring us unto life. Give us faith, the assurance of faith, and give us one of that great benefit, one of the great benefits, a life of godliness that shows the mortification of the old and the quickening of the new. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hope prchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.